War crimes are sadly nothing new, and when it comes to the war in Afghanistan, there have been many incidents over the last two decades where the laws of war have been broken. Yet over the last couple of months, headlines around the world have been plastered with allegations that have shaken the Australian military and arguably tarnished its reputation. Here, of course, I'm talking about the accusations against Ben Robert Smith, Australia's most decorated soldier. The allegations against Robert Smith are exactly that. They are allegations. He has not been found guilty at any criminal proceedings, a sentence that you will hear me repeat a lot in this episode. But they shine a light on the issue, and it's one I wanted to explore further. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare, and I'm thankful to my old friend and a friend of this podcast, Patrick Bury, for joining us. Patrick was a captain in the British Army, in the infantry, and he served in Afghanistan. He's now an associate professor at the University of Bath in the UK, where he works on important issues of conflict and security. He's also author of Call Sign Hades, Afghanistan at its worst, men at their best, and it's from Patrick's own experience that we analyse this important topic which due to its very nature and its focus on war crimes means that this episode contains references to extreme violence and content that some listeners may find disturbing. Hi Paddy, welcome back to Warfare. How are you doing? I'm good man, and you? Yeah, I'm good. It seems like an age ago since we last had you on the podcast. And every time I get you on, I've got you talking about something different. But that's just because you're an interesting chap, obviously. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, I don't know what we've done. We did natty mega structures and IEDs, I think. Yeah, well, I said you're an interesting guy. That's because you co-presented <laughs> Nazi Megastructures. You co-presented that with people like the likes of James Holland, and he's not boring either. And then when we were talking about IEDs, that was based on your time serving in the British Army as a captain in Afghanistan during that time in Sangin province, when the IEDs were quite literally an everyday blight on British forces there. Yep, yep. No, that was right. It was... Um... It got tasty. <laughs> it got tasty. That's one way of putting it. Now, we have covered this war in Afghanistan, America's longest war, so many ways on the podcast, from the rise of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda through to that disastrous withdrawal in 2021. And, and you and I have privately spoken about that so many times and our thoughts on it and just how terribly it was handled towards the end there and the impact that it had on on soldiers who had fought there and fought hard to try and liberate that country but the conflict has been making headlines again around the world recently due to alleged war crimes committed by members of the Australian military the most high profile of which is Ben Robert Smith Australia's most decorated soldier who just lost a multi-million dollar defamation case against three newspapers who accused him of committing war crimes in Africa. Afghanistan. Now, I should just restate that Ben Robert Smith has not been found guilty of any criminal wrongdoing at this point in time. This was a civil case against the three newspapers who accused him. But Paddy, with all of this in mind and with your experience in mind, maybe you can take us back to that point before you were deployed in Afghanistan, that period when you were readying up for a deployment, you were a captain in the British Army. How are you prepared to handle the pressures of war and what limitations are put on you in terms of the use of force? Yeah, it's a good question. And a lot of this comes down to basic training and and there's a question about whether in the basic training say for officers and indeed for soldiers as well there's enough done on the morality aspect you know of doing what is right essentially now I do remember them saying to me in Sanders essentially do what is right but they never you know what is right for who becomes the question because 
you don't know what each person to the left and right of you, the values they hold. Of course, they've gone through a selection process, especially if you're an officer and there's an expectation there. But have they identified actually the deeply personal values of each person? No. But what they do instill, of course, is values-led leadership and the values of the British Army. So what they're taking really there, and they're pretty well instilled into, I can only really speak from the officer level in my own training, but they're very well instilled at those levels, the values of the British Army. And I imagine they are as well, you know, they are a part of the course, the curriculum for soldiers. So what they're trying to do is get people to internalize those values as a layer on top of their own values, their own personal values, I suppose. And it was relatively brief about the sort of the morality aspect, I suppose, which becomes very important in a lot of what we're going to talk about, I think. But because it was there at the foundational level, what I found certainly when I was in in war was that you would flip back to what you learned you know, back at the basics, when you're kind of wavering and going, what do I do here? If you could think back to your color sergeant waving his pace stick at you, telling you what was right and what was wrong, that was kind of a good handrail. That was my own experience. But, you know, to give you an idea of whether you can actually be prepared for this, really, I don't know. I'll give you, so in, I was a young green second lieutenant and my mate, another officer came back from the Royal Irish and he'd been handpicked to serve with three para to reinforce three para battalion when they did the initial heavy fighting in Helmand in 2006 and they had a really combat intensive tour you know conventional combat the heaviest fighting the British army had been involved in since Korea with the Taliban just basically human wave attacks against bases and ambushes etc and he came back from that and I said you know wanting to know drinking in the mess with them you know I said what's the what's the most important lesson you learned And I thought he was going to say, you know, I was asking and I was looking for a tactical solution, like in an L-shaped ambush, do this, in a in a hot LZ, do this. You know, we're all infantiers, infantry platoon commanders who want to know what to do. And, you know, there are some set drills, etc. He just looked me in the eye and said, Paddy, don't let your blokes lose their humanity. And I was like, what does that mean? And I banked it. It wasn't, I just didn't really get it. And it was about halfway through the tour in Sangam and we were taking casualties. There was a fair bit of killing going on as well. Half the people hated us there. And the blokes, you could feel the hardness, the corrosiveness of being involved in combat, of taking casualties and meeting them out. That corrosiveness, that humanity starting to go, as you would expect, because it's a hard place and you have to act hard. And that's when I thought back and I was struggling with this. I was struggling with like, how do you set yourself up as a group of people, as a group of men, actually, but some women at that stage, but the medics really to deal in this situation where you're being blown up and you're not seeing the enemy without losing yourself. And, but you know, in a way that gets the people under your command home in the best moral sense as well as not just physical. And how do you deal with this, Paddy? Do you sit down with your troops? Do you remind them of the laws of war, the Geneva Convention, how prisoners of war should be treated? They should be, of course, treated with the utmost levels of humanity and not harmed. 
Is that the sort of thing you do here, or do you just sit down and have a personal chat and talk through some of the problems that each person is having, or is it just not as formal as this? I mean, how do you process this in a time of war during incredibly intense conflict like you spoke about, where you almost have to dehumanise the enemy in some ways to be able to kill them, but in asymmetric warfare, where you have the enemy that can also look like civilians at the same time, you have this quagmire, this mess of a conflict all at once that makes it almost impossible to keep your humanity. How do you even begin to deal with that? Well, yeah, like in a practical level. So you have your, we would have in the DC in Sangin, we had our little space where under a camo net we could sit on like sandbags. And every evening you'd get the platoon together with the platoon sergeants. And I would have the brief, the information and the intel brief, the orders from the OC from my boss. And then any intel updates and the sergeant would have the whole piece about like how to actually run the platoon in terms of the logistics ammo guard duty and all that so that's it so you're a team like you are actually the mum and the dad some people can argue who's who but um the interesting thing so the way we managed it first of all a lot of the conversations as the war went a lot of the a lot of so the rules of engagement which you're getting at are very clear if you're a british soldier you know it's slightly different for the americans you can lose lethal force to protect life yeah and that's it, really. But okay, not no. property. Life. Only life. No. Yeah. And Americans can use lethal force to protect property if they have to. Yeah. yeah. So they've got a looser rules of engagement. That meant, you know, how did that translate on the ground? That meant, actually, to be honest with you, if somebody was potentially carrying a weapon but not raising it in an offensive way, then you would actually, yeah, not be, especially if it was concealed weapon. Yeah. So like under their dish dash you could not use lethal force there. And then so the Taliban sort of worked this out and they started cutting about with the stuff under their dish dash. It all gets a bit stupid, really. So hang on, you know that there is a member of the Taliban in firing range of you. You know that they're armed. But because they're not, at that present time, raising their weapon and a threat to life... No direct threat to life. No direct threat to life. You can't take action against them. Yeah. That would be our rules of engagement. So, and so, what so that makes found, it even more difficult. And, and, you oh, know, it's very great. So when you go out and you deploy, it, go, it looks very clear. And those rules of engagement are very clear. But actually what happens starts, well, <laughs> a lot of the operational stuff starts happening in the grey areas in between what's clear. And it requires interpretation, immediate interpretation. And the blokes, the lads are looking to you for interpret them. And that's where the constant, so this is to get back. So what you'd spent a lot of your time was running through scenarios based on the latest intel about what would be the appropriate action for one of the rangers to do if they were if they were faced with that situation. So talking through, what would you do here? This would be right, this wouldn't be right. There you couldn't do it, there you could. Yada, yada. And in doing that, actually, you end up with the situation. So so PJ was a brilliant sergeant and we got on great with me together, both from Ireland. And um, he'd had got a lot of experience. And he would sort of say, you know, he'd set the tone by, look, the two things I always remember him saying is like, I'd rather be, if you're unsure, I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six, you know, which is pretty tough way of dealing with it. And I always felt like, yeah, that's right. It's this balance between operational toughness and hardness that you need, especially, you know, infantry. And just to unpack that there, Paddy, what he's referring to is, I would prefer to be judged by a military tribunal of 12 years than to be carried off by six carrying a coffin. Right, okay. So that was his take. And I and he was right. And, you know, keeping the platoon sort of focused on that and tough and ready to fight versus I was like, I would always feel like, okay, yeah, that's correct. But we need to temper it too, you know, and do what is right. 
and constantly remember what is right and come back to those. And that balance worked. That was the point, you know. And like if you're talking about how do you set yourself up, it's all about nurturing the team. And this is so important in some of the cases we're going to talk about, right? It comes from the leader and it does come from the leader. And generally, you know, that is in the way that the US and Australian and British militaries, Canadian, most of them are set up. That is the officer, officers supported by their senior NCOs is about unit climate. What is acceptable? What is not? And in all, in pretty much, as far as I'm aware, all these cases we're going to talk about, it's the unit climate goes awry. There's some leadership issues. The climate is not set in the correct constraining way. And as a result, the scope for action, which is not acceptable, widens. And this is all happening in a context, which as I've said, this is an incredibly corrosive environment. And like I'm, you know, I've experienced, so I was infantry, I was attached to elite infantry. It was high threat counterinsurgency with some fairly punchy engagements in them. It's not conventional high intensity interstate warfare, which is even more corrosive because it's just on a different scale altogether. So that's really kind of what the battle is. And, you know, to talk about, I was thinking about this before we came on, platoon. Oliver Stone captures that really well, this battle about how do you set yourself up as a bunch of people? And what are you willing to sacrifice to survive? That's really what it's about. And Barnes and Elias, you know, Barnes, this hardcore super soldier, no morals, just going to do what I have to do and kill my way out of the problem versus Elias, who's like, be careful here, be awful careful. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on not just the Tudors from History Hit, my guests and I run through the full gamut of human emotion and experience. From the heartbreak of the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth not being able to marry arguably the only man in the world she ever really wanted to marry, may have, for that reason, not married anyone else. To a prenatal battle of the sexes. A male and a female seed meet in the womb at conception, and whichever one is stronger determines the sex of the unborn child. From Lady Jane Grey facing her executioner. You can't help but feel just the utmost sympathy for this young girl. To why the Laughing Cavalier is, well, laughing. He strikes me as someone who goes off on a sort of swaggering booze up. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And so is there this toxicity of a super soldier when it comes to modern warfare? And is this what we're looking at in terms of the case of Ben Robert Smith and what he's been accused of? Because if these things are found to be true, then they are incredibly heinous war crimes. And again, we will say if these are found to be true. But what the judge in the civil case has said are true are most undisputably war crimes. Can you take us through what it is that Ben's been accused of? Yeah, well, so in this case, again, from the information we have as open source, is that essentially the context is really important, whereas a numerous Australian special forces are accused of numerous murders of Afghan people, whether Taliban civilians or not. And there's been an investigation into that, which I think is ongoing. And Ben Robert Smith was more specific about that. Certain people at certain times, for example, handcuffed, pushed off a cliff, shot, etc. And shocking stuff, really. This happens in war is the first thing. And there's a really important context piece about what special forces were involved in at the time and where they came from, which would... Because I think really here we uh, were interested potentially in explaining to people how these things happen and what goes wrong rather than excusing them. Where there is no excuse, but there are some explainers which help people understand, okay, because this is ultimately is a human endeavor involving humans. And as humans, we should be interested then in in how how things go wrong. Um, but to come back to the culture elements, you, you, you set the standard. I think, to be honest with you, this would be my experience. Like David, Colonel David Grossman is Amer- what well, I don't know if he's still active, but like American Army psychologist. And he wrote a very good book called On Killing, which I recommend to people. It's basically like one of the, the seminal texts. Very few books about the impact of killing. Well, you know, we're talking about this today and, you know, listeners will be able to tell that we're finding it difficult to talk about ourselves and to say the right words because it's an incredibly sensitive topic, one that you do have to make sure you get the right words about and one that is difficult to write about and difficult to talk about. And, you know, it, it takes someone who's been in the military to be able to talk about this. 
Yeah, well, you know, different people talk about, you know, are willing to talk about different things. And there's a generational shift as well between, say, someone like my granddad's brother, who would be much less reticent to talk about some things. So, no, where was I? What was I thinking about? Look, Dave Grossman's book, he talks about the general, and again, there might be psychologists that came to this, but the thing I always remember is general population psychopathy slash sociopathy is about 1%. Now, he says in the military, the military, that's 2%. I would say in the infantry experience here, broad, broad caveat, this is my own, it must be double, double the 2%. It must be about 4% psychopaths, I would think, or sociopaths. People who, you know, these, it, it self-selects for people that are outside of normal society and look, you've got a lot of young men who aren't the most mature, who are interested in firing guns and blowing things up and having a sense of adventure. And some of them don't really care if they kill people like that is just society as, as abhorrent as people may find that there are those people. And it self-selects for some of those, too. And yeah, my experience. And of course, you've got people as you move on, whether it's sociopathy or psychopathy, you've got people who are from hard backgrounds, who've had hard times and their characters reflect that. And guess what? To protect society, you need some of them and they find a niche. And I would push this on. This is where we get to Ben Robert Smith. I would push this on. When you move, having done some of the elite infantry training and served alongside them, I would say that in, a, again, I you know, big caveat here, but if it's maybe 4% in the infantry, maybe it's a bit more in the elite infantry. It's self-selecting all the time for harder, tougher and to some degree more separated from normal society people and normally men at this stage. And if you move that into the special forces, from the special forces people who I know, obviously a lot of them are great people, highly competent, but they are increasingly moving into a very select subset of society. And I think even listening to something about the Navy, an interview of the Navy SEAL, the former Navy SEAL who was killed in, Ukraine, Africa, gone AWOL. You know, even the Navy SEALs and Hume were saying, Dan Swift, people, if they're interested in the story, should have a look at uh, Real Clear Defense, uh, have a have an interview about it. But um, even the Navy SEALs interviewed for that are like, look, we're a strange set of people. And so this is the context where you get to what's going on with the Australian Special Forces. And I think you're self-selecting towards a certain kind of person. And then you're going to put them into a very select, corrosive war environment a situation like none of us will hopefully ever have to experience with the pressures of war that we will never have to experience yeah yeah and especially with you know special forces you know because this is where this context of what was going on again to explain but not excuse you know iraq 2005 six and you've got aqi al-qaeda in iraq on the rise causing a massive amount of problems for the coalition and the solution really the stan mccrystal comes up with is right we're gonna have to use our special forces use our edge in intelligence to launch nightly sometimes twice nightly multiple violent special forces raids on al-qaeda networks to basically dismantle them to kill our way out of the problem industrial scale you know a lot of killing involved. And it worked. It got inside the loop and it destroyed Al-Qaeda in Iraq for that period and created the conditions along with the Anbar awakening and a few other things, you know, political reconciliation. But to create the situation for a more stable Iraq over the, that period of, you know, 2007 to 11, shall we say. Now, then you switch to Afghan 
and Petraeus is in charge at the time and he's overseen, you know, he was part of the coin part in McChrystal and he's like, right, well, that worked there, so let's do it now in Afghan. And the special forces are involved in that. But the problem is, is the intelligence isn't as good. Afghan society is much more disparate and the targeting aspects of it, exactly who is who and, you know, are they Taliban for hardcore Taliban, less hardcore, seems to be the problem was a bit harder to define. And crucially, this is really important, there was a mal dysfunctional Afghan justice system. So, you know, I'll give you an example that I can speak about, which is that, you know, when we were in Sangin, just by total chance, we were out on an evening patrol one night and we caught a guy red-handed digging in an IED. And when we did, we got his dish dash. In his dish dash was a note of like the whole network and everybody. And we're like, right, this is the kingpin in the area. And we arrested him and brought him back into the base and sent him back to Bastion, which is the main holding area. And pretty soon, you know, then the Afghan National Police started agitating for his release. And this is the Afghan way of war. They all know each other and they're sitting on the fence and cutting deals and all that. And about two, and this guy should have gone to prison. He'd be responsible for killing civilians, soldiers, everything. And um, within about two weeks, he was released. Because there was no prison system you know they couldn't it was corrupt it didn't function highly difficult to get convictions etc so so this is the situation where if you're uh, australian american british special forces you're deployed into on this essentially take down the network destroy the hardcore taliban as best you can and they're your constraints you know so there is no kill or capture in that situation because once you capture given the system that you are embedded with and left with, they are released afterwards. And so does this leave a mentality in a soldier's mind that there is only kill? Yeah, I think in, in a nutshell, if you're, you know, you're operating strategic, the special forces deliver strategic policy at the tactical level, you know, and they're the ones that often are, have to navigate these complete policy conundrums, which is like, on the one hand, dismantle the network. On the other hand, the prisons aren't really working. It did get better. You know, but at the time this happened, I think it's 2011 or whatever, isn't it? Um, well, well, like you mentioned, Paddy, this is explain, not excuse. But it's hard to even explain some of these these allegations that have been brought against Ben Robert Smith. Because according to the judge who is trying to weigh whether or not these three newspapers in Australia have made accurate claims against about war crimes against Ben Robert Smith, he said that four of the six murder allegations were substantially true. Again, this is a civil case. And these are, for example, like you mentioned, a farmer who is handcuffed and then kicked off a cliff. This then knocks the man's teeth out and then he's subsequently shot dead. Another case is a captured Taliban fighter who was shot at least 10 times in the back before his prosthetic leg was taken as a trophy and used by troops as a drinking vessel. And then two murders which were ordered or agreed to, allegedly, by Mr. Robert Smith to initiate or blood rookie soldiers. And of course, all of this in mind, there is no way to excuse these. There's a broader situation of war. War is war, and we can explain why these things do happen. But surely, Paddy, this is going to be a massive blow to the reputation of the Australian military. Yeah, and you're totally right. You know, this is horrendous stuff, and it suggests what I would say is a failure of unit climate. Certainly the blooding thing shows you just how bad it's gone. This is somebody who is obviously... He was only a corporal at the time, as far as I'm aware. He shouldn't have that kind of command presence to be able to blood other people. But that, it's just horrendous. 
And it's the complete opposite of good leadership, of what people should be doing. And as I said, and this is what the context is, you're self-selecting. And unfortunately, as you move into these organizations, I just am pretty much convinced you are have the chances to end up with some bad eggs, you know. And, you know, special forces, of course, to get in, they obviously prove themselves massively. But once you're in, because they've proven themselves so much, the general sort of leeway for them to remain and operate in the way that they, the trust in them, the trust in them to operate the main way is, is massive. It's more than in, say, the red line infantry because they've been selected. They are the right stuff. So I think that's another really important thing. But that is, it's just horrendous. It should not be happening. It's completely wrong. And there is no excuse for it. And it comes down to, I would say, leadership, you know, who is checking on them. And you can be a great soldier. And, you know, a lot of these hard, tough nuts are amazing soldiers. But are you a good person? And ultimately, in these kind of things, you need good people. Actually, the best soldiers are the ones that don't like doing it. Well, you mentioned the fact that there is perhaps an increased percentage of those who might commit such acts within the special operations forces sector or those within the special sections of the infantry. And so is it fair to say that this isn't just an Australian problem? Have we seen incidences like this across allied forces in Afghanistan? Oh, yeah, 100%. And, you know, one of the other ones, which actually happened just as I was leaving Sangin, was the one involving a Canadian officer this is one of the most interesting ones because it was basically, and I heard it as through military channels as a mercy killing. He basically came across two Taliban, which I think had been, one was dead and the other was very badly injured from an Apache and on the patrol. And this officer, Captain Semro, you know, he decided that it was the humane thing to, to do was to kill him. Now, we're taught you can't do that. You're just taught. That's not your job to, to play life like that, play God. But he's commented to a soldier after he shot this guy twice and killed him. And the, they never recovered the body, which suggests he was Taliban, actually. But, yeah, he said, you know, I couldn't live with myself leaving another human being like that. And in a high profile case, he was later, the word came out about it and he was later put on court martial. And he, he was discharged with dishonor and a reduction in rank from the Canadian army, but not and there wasn't enough evidence to find him guilty of anything like that. Now, that's an unusual case. And, of course, one of the ones that is sort of an, a sideline is mercy killing of, like, what happens if you're, you know, you can be left in a bad way in some of these things. And do you have to kill, you know, again, you can just think, but like this is something the soldiers deal with. But legally, there's no such thing as a mercy killing. And it isn't the soldier's decision once... Once an enemy combatant has been injured, they are under the Geneva Convention, they have to be treated in, yeah. in, in certain moral, legal, ethical ways. And again, we're not in that situation. We don't know what that soldier was faced with. No, but it's common knowledge that soldiers often ask, badly wounded soldiers often ask their comrades to kill them. You know, that's common knowledge. So that's perhaps one that shows there is this grey zone, this incredibly difficult, complex situation in war. But there's others that are perhaps on par, kind of comparable to the allegations made against Ben Robert Smith is Marine A, which is one in the British Army, right, Paddy? Yeah, Marine A um, in Helmand with the Royal Marine, Sergeant Blackman. Similar enough to that case I just mentioned to Semro, except the argument for a mercy killing seemed a little more convoluted and obviously marine a two court cases eventually found guilty then there's a retrial it's reduced and he's let out essentially 
And that's around the final words that Marine uses. He's mortal coil. Quoting Shakespeare, then added at the end at the C word as a an yeah. explosive shuffle off this mortal coil, you. And that doesn't speak too much to mercy. And then I'll, and I've just broken the Geneva Convention. You know? Well, yeah, um, of course. Yeah. So that suggests a sort of essentially is what his defense argued was this guy was under a lot of stress, had taken casualties, etc. But they made the made the case that it was a result of war. And, you know, this is the other interesting thing about this. Like, you know, some of Ben Robert Smith's comrades were like, look, you send us out there to kill bad guys and we kill bad guys and then you bring us back and you go, oh, well, now you're on... You know, you can see, like, there's, you put people into harm's way and, and actually Western militaries, I think, you know, if you look how Lay, the commander, was actually treated fairly leniently in the end after killing, you know, giving the order for a village uh, to be killed... Generally, I think the the West kind of views, okay, we've put them in harm's way, and that does take into account, um, obviously, because it becomes a political football as well. Well, of course, but so, but you mentioned there's obviously a psychological factor, the psychology of war, the mental state of the soldiers themselves. But one thing I feel like you're alluding to here, Paddy, is a broader institutional problem that we have here about who we're choosing to put in these situations. And as you're speaking, the one thing that keeps coming to mind in my head, given the current situation in Ukraine, is the fact that Russia is picking as many prisoners as they can possibly sign up to put on the front lines in the war in Ukraine. And so I guess my final question to you is yes we should and we will continue to focus on Afghanistan and I'm sure more cases like this will crop up but are we looking at a future where there are going to be hundreds if not thousands of reported war crimes that need to be investigated coming out of Russia's offensive war against Ukraine purely because of the type of troops that Russia are choosing to put into that fight? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the first thing you've got to remember, hundreds of thousands of Western troops served in Afghanistan over 20 years. And there are maybe, of we know of, like three proven or active cases so far. Certainly there's some questions about other things. There's been reports about what the British SAS did, I know, on Newsnight, etc. But so it's very small, which suggests that actually for such a corrosive thing, something is actually going right. This is going to happen. You know, it, ha- it just happens. This is what happens in war because it's so corrosive, as I keep saying. Look, I tell you what an, an interesting thing about the Russians is. Yeah, you look at what happens in Bucha and Irpin. And when they really started to come under the cosh, these columns were advancing in Ukraine last year and getting smashed up by Ukrainian artillery. And... One of the aspects, again, explain doesn't excuse, but you've got to remember, this is the future of war. Now everybody's their own little sensor with a mobile phone. And any civilian, you know, I think about, imagine if I had to deal with this in Afghan, but any civilian can now take a picture, geolocate you, send it to a fire control node and have your mates killed very quickly. Now, how do you think that explains, contributes to how poorly led because they are poorly led, the Russians are, because they don't have enough NCOs. And poorly trained. And and yeah, well, some of these some of these guys would have been more regular at the time, you know, than others. But yeah, exactly. And then you take into the account the brutal experiences they have and maybe how actually brutalized they are from their previous days. And suddenly it becomes, you're like, oh yeah, okay, I can see why they were targeting civilians because they're like, I'm getting smashed here. And I don't know who's passing the, the information on in that same kind of insurgency way as well. So... Unfortunately, I think this development in terms of the laws of armed conflict has become really interesting because actually if you are a civilian, yeah, under the laws of armed conflicts, who is actively participating in the conflict, well, then you have 
negated your protection. So, you know, I would view it under the law, letters of the law. If you're passing information on, you're a saboteur. Saboteurs then can be can be targeted. So the democratization of new technologies that allow you to report yeah. intelligence in war are actually putting civilians into the firing line. Yeah, an interpretation of that would be that now you are an active participant. And what's fascinating is then how do you train young leaders and soldiers to deal with this? What do you do? Well, you know, at the very basic level, I suppose you go around confiscating phones. <laughs> you know, that's the first thing you have to do is get everybody's phone, which doesn't stop it, but and obviously take down the internet connections and stuff like that. But Then on the other side of that, I suppose it's those same civilian reportings that will also be incredibly useful when it comes to hold people to account for the crimes that they've committed, whether that's um, commercial hobbyist drones in the sky above that are recording the, the crimes that are taking place in civilian areas and on, on the battlefield, or those pictures and videos that are taken that are posted up on Telegram or sent back to be documented and, and kept as evidence later. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it cuts both ways. It cuts both ways, of course. But I just think it's something that militaries are going to have to grapple with much more. Well, it's something that I hadn't thought about in any way, shape or form. So, Paddy, thank you so much for your time today, for taking us through your own experiences and through that, helping us to understand this incredibly high profile case that is taking place and will likely to continue over the next months or perhaps even into years. And of course, applying this to what we're seeing in Ukraine now. Paddy, you always have such good insight onto what is going on into contemporary conflict. So please tell us where can people follow you online? Where can they read more? Where can they read more? God, uh, well, I did. I did write about this sort of the morality aspect in Coastline Hades, which is a book I wrote ten years ago about our platoons' uh, experience of Afghan. And other than that, they can follow me on Twitter at Patrick Bury. Perfect, Paddy. Thank you so much for your time, and we're we'll, going to get you back on the Warfare Podcast again lovely, soon. Lovely chatting to you. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to 
thehistoryhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.